This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Sort of Sam, how's it going? Well, we're recording this on Thursday and it is hot. It is 28 degrees in our hot. kitchen. Leslie has taken the kids to the beach. Oh you my didn't... gosh, it is about... Nine degrees in Fakatani and it's raining and grey. That's completely yeah. unfair. I'm pretty sure it's always like that there. <laughs> it's not. You know it's not. <laughs> and who are we introducing today? It is an absolute great pleasure to introduce Kieran McInulty today. Uh, Kieran is the MP for Wairarapa and our Chief Government Whip. And uh, it is um, a real pleasure to have you um, in in your role and just you as a human, Kieran, you're a good dude. Welcome. G'day, g'day both of you and g'day everyone that's watching and listening. Um, really pleased to be here. I wish that it was 28 degrees in, in Wellington, but it's not. No, we're are, you, are you in Wellington now? Yeah, I'm in my office in Parliament. Uh, Parliament is sitting at the moment. I, it's uh, knocking off in about 40 minutes time. So, uh, I'll uh, looking forward to having a yarn with you, and then I'll sneak off just in time to go and wrap things up. So we've been asking people how their bubble life was, and now we're having to put explanations around that. How was your first bubble life? Your bubble life last year? Uh, well, it was quite full on actually, because um, there was so much uncertainty, of course. And uh, as we were heading into lockdown, you know, we saw predictions of up to 20% unemployment, uh, devastation on our healthcare system, uh, on people's livelihoods, on the economy, on business, on communities. Um, and so there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of concern. Um, and it's something that I've been reflecting on this second lockdown by way of comparison, because whilst we were still busy dealing with constituency matters, there didn't appear to be the same level of anxiety heading into the second lockdown. It was like New Zealanders, right, we get this now, we know what we've got to do, let's just get on with it sort of thing. And uh, I think that's testament to the resilience of New Zealanders actually. But uh, from a personal perspective, the first lockdown was quite enjoyable. Um, we learned a lot. It was, it was ironically, even though we couldn't leave the boundaries of the household busier than I've ever been in this role dealing with all those uh, concerns and questions and trying to get things support in place in the community. But also at a personal level, took a bit of a gamble because uh, my partner and I had been going out for a relatively short period of time and it was very much a 
we were together when the announcement was made and it was very much a should I stay or should I go situation. Um, but she decided to stay and we're still together. So there you go. Happy days. So the whole thing was an elaborate ploy to get you two to, together. That's right. And it's done the trick. Um, <laughs> I mean, it could have been an absolute disaster. Oh, could you imagine if it turned haywire in the first week? That would have been awkward as. <laughs> we're used to how New Zealand responded, but we responded really differently to the rest of the world. Or most of the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Being, a, being around those true. kind of decisions and making those kind of decisions back in, and, and when you were... Th- when the pandemic was, you know, starting to just come up on the blips on the news and it was there. Do you have any insight as to how we ended up going down the direction that we went down and not the direction that other places have done? Well, I I guess generally, if we're looking at the country as a whole as opposed to the government, I think there were three key factors there. Um, I think the New Zealanders had faith in the government and in the leadership of the Prime Minister and Dr Ashley Bloomfield. Uh, And also the the part of that was because of the quality of communication from those two. Um, There's been various assessments done by global news outlets that has consistently ranked New Zealand's COVID response as the best in the world. And a big part of that was the way in which we were able to communicate. Uh, The Prime Minister and Dr Bloomfield were able to communicate to the country. It was vitally important because with anything, if you're going to get uh, a large group of people, and in this case, the whole country, behind something, they've got to understand the reasons why and they've got to understand what their role is. And, um, uh, you know, if you think back, we didn't know what a bubble was. We didn't know what an alert level was. We didn't know what social distancing was. All these sorts of things that are now just part of our lexicon and part of our daily lives, if we remove ourselves back to that point when we didn't know any of these things and we were being asked to self-isolate and remain in our homes and get our head around the most, the biggest intrusion in our civil liberties and, and living memory, and yet New Zealanders just got on and did it. And I think that's the aspect that stands us out to so many other countries overseas. Uh, We haven't had large scale protests um, and we've just had the the typical Kiwi mentality is, oh, well, this is a bugger, but we might as well get on and sort it out. And uh, and I think that's the key thing. So good leadership, faith in that leadership, excellent communication and a genuine sense of teamwork and and, and societal inclusion uh, with New Zealanders. So yeah, that's what stood us out, I think. Things like the the be kind message, were they were they like workshopped? Were you talking about options and things about where that was what that was going to be, or did it like come from? You know, was it obvious that that's what it was going to be? I doubt it was workshopped. I mean, I don't know for sure. I, I was uh, uh, in Masterton at the time when the decision was made um, at my home, but uh, I knowing the leadership as I do, I wouldn't be surprised if that just came instinctively to the Prime Minister and it was a message that she 
put out as part of a broader communication, I doubt that it would have been identified as something that needed to be said and workshopped in order to do so. I mean, um, it pretty much sums her up, really. The, the woman you see on TV is the woman you see in real life. She's just as happy and just as kind and, and considerate as, as you see on telly. Um, but isn't it, doesn't it say a lot about Kiwis that that was the message that really resonated? I mean, I remember driving around the electorate when we dropped down levels and I was amazed to see in paddocks up and down the country handmade signs, kia kaha Aotearoa, um, be kind. You know, we really did get behind that message. And I think that that has resonated through and carried on through the rest of this lockdown. You know, no one's life is, is straightforward. Everyone's got a complex element to their life and, and you can't apply a rule to everyone as a blanket. There's always going to be little things that make it a bit niggly. And wearing masks in the supermarket at the moment now that it's mandatory is a prime example because we know that there are some people that actually can't for, for medical and personal reasons wear masks. And we see this communication um, from community groups and the supermarkets themselves and from government departments outlining that that's the situation. And if you see it, don't be alarmed and be kind to them. We don't know the reasons why. You know, this is why we're not seeing altercations in the supermarket when people are stressed and all that sort of stuff. They just get on, get in there, get, get on with what they're doing and then get home to their whanau. I'm going to squeeze in the first of the music you've sent us. Let's have Old Crow Medicine Show's version of Wagon Wheel. Why this one? Oh, look, there's, there's um, something quite special about this song. Uh, if you play this in any country hall or any country pub, you're guaranteed to fill the dance floor within about 30 seconds. Pray to God I see headlights I made it down the coast in 17 hours Picking me a bouquet of dogwood flowers And I'm hoping for Riley I can see my baby tonight So rock me mama like a wagon wheel Rock me mama any way you feel A guitar, a big banjo now. All oh, North Country winners keep forgetting me, and I lost my money playing 
book I saw had to wipe and lay But I ain't no turn it back The little lad don't laugh no more So rock me mama like a wagon wheel Rock me mama any way you feel Hey mama rock me Rock me mama like the wind and the rain Rock me mama like a southbound train I caught a trucker out of Philly, had a nice long toke But he's a headed west from the Cumberland Gap A Johnson City, Tennessee And I gotta get a move on before the sun I hear my baby calling my name And I know that she's the only one And if I die in Raleigh, at least I will die free So wreck me, mama, like a wagon wheel So, Kieran, Chief Whip 101, what's your job? Good question. <laughs> um, when I got this, I uh, people in Wadded Upper would stop me in the street and say, hey, congratulations on being made Chief Whip. I'd say, thanks very much. And then they'd say, what's Chief Whip? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. so you're not, not alone in asking that. Um, it derives, obviously, Parliament here in Wellington is, is derived from Westminster in London. And whilst we have changed things and made it our own, the guts of it remains the same, just like other Westminster-style parliaments like in Australia and Canada. Um, and uh, in the old days, they still have it in Westminster, but in the old days here in First Past the Post, when members of Parliament were only directly elected from their electorates, they needed a whip to maintain discipline within the caucus. And by that, I mean they needed to make sure that the MPs voted the way that they, the leadership wanted them to vote. Um, things have changed a wee bit now under MMP. Whips vote on behalf of the party. And so um, there isn't the same requirement to go and chase up members and make sure that they vote the way you want them to vote. But it is also broadened out. So obviously there's still a disciplinary element to it, uh, but that's not the main element. Now it's the whip's job to make sure that legislation passes through the house in a, in a timely manner in the, uh, in the time that we hope to. There are some things that we want it to go through the house relatively slowly and do full calls. There are some things that we want to get through quickly and there can be various reasons for that. Um, for example, we might have a minister that's away on leave not getting back until after the dinner break, 
they're due to introduce an important piece of legislation. So we might hold things up before that so that we can guarantee that we won't go too quickly and they miss that opportunity. Or it might be an urgent piece of legislation and that we'll just rip through it. So little things like that. So it's our job to, to understand the standing orders and the speaker's rulings and to ensure that uh, uh, pieces of legislation go through. Um, and then there's also, I mentioned leave. So each party is allowed 25% of their caucus away from parliament at any given time without that affecting the number of votes that they've got. So once we uh, receive all the leave applications, we decide what takes priority and decline or approve leave applications accordingly. Those that either haven't applied for leave or have had their applications declined, they have to stay on precinct for the entirety of the sitting. Uh, otherwise, the votes don't count. So precinct's quite large. Um, there's a number of buildings here and the grounds, as long as you are within the grounds, you could be outside doing push-ups on the front lawn. Your vote could still count. But if you go across the road to the back bench to get a pint, it's not going to count. So, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's the other part, that, and it's something that I've brought in since I got this job, was a professional development program for our MPs. I'm conscious that, you know, we've got 65 MPs. It's the largest ever MP caucus. Um, there's not enough jobs for everyone to go, to go around everyone. Uh, also, the... Um, the, there's very much been a sink or swim mentality in Parliament, and I don't think that's the best way to get uh, the best out of people. So um, we've got a situation where we are constantly working with our new and uh, more experienced MPs um, to identify areas that they would like to skill up in. It might be with the media, it might be practical things like speed reading, because we do a lot of reading in this job. Um, and if you're a slow reader like me, uh, I've stopped putting my finger across the page, but that's about as far as I've got. Um, then learning to read quickly is uh, is quite a good skill to have. Or it might be speaking with confidence in the house. Uh, it takes a bit of practice to get good at that. You know, you can be as good a public speaker as you like standing in front of a crowd uh, at home or on a street corner and doing a speech. You get up in the house and you've got 33 national MPs yelling at you. It can be daunting for a lot of people. So uh, little things like that that we've brought in and it seems to be working quite well. Um, the other aspect of that too is that um, uh, the life of an MP is incredibly demanding and takes a, a large toll on people's families, um, a large toll on relationships and a large toll on the individual themselves. And um, I'm very conscious of that. So we use the leave system uh, to try and prioritise people's personal uh, circumstances to, to make sure that they have the space to look after their own well-being, but also nurture the relationships that are important to them. It might not be the sort of discipline that is part of your job, but I was really impressed with the answer the Prime Minister gave in a news in a, in a, um, a press conference the other day about um, the behaviour of MPs. She, the, she was asked something like, have all of your MPs behaved? And I was thinking, has one of these journalists got a picture of some MP doing something in lockdown that they shouldn't have. And she answered it really well. It was about, you know, we ask them to role model, but we can't ask them to be totally perfect all the time. Yeah. yeah. That must be a real challenge I mean, for you. It is, but you, you've got to be empathetic. I mean, everyone's going to make mistakes. It doesn't matter what job you're in, particularly uh, in a high-pressure environment when you might be away from home or, or whatever. Uh, your judgment at times can be 
um, can be strained. But um, I'm not here to cast judgment on anyone. I'm just here to make sure that um, they behave in a way that is becoming of the role. Uh, it is a real privilege to be a member of parliament and it does require a certain level of behaviour uh, that it, uh, they behave in a way that doesn't bring the Prime Minister uh, into, or the government and, or the party into disrepute, or Parliament for that matter. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, we are still all humans and we all have a private life. And um, sometimes um, life gets in the way. And if that happens, we just deal with that and, uh, and then try to put systems in place where people feel supported and then move on. Corner up the back of an alley There's a pokey little pub that's called the Raking of the Moon I can't for the life of me remember its location But be certain not to miss it if you're looking for a tune I was there a night myself, on a Monday or a Thursday With a head full of directions from a man I didn't know Who had said I might be fortunate enough to find a session So I bundled up me fiddle and I thought I'd have a go And I was there, sitting in the middle of the banjo And the bow running the bones with me fiddle And we played just like it was going out of fashion As we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion The session that the people do today and that there was the chorus. After pounding on the pavement for an hour and a quarter, I eventually found the place that I was looking for. I could tell it was the session by the way the place was rocking. The music you could hear at least a dozen blocks or more. Nobody objected when I asked if I could enter, though a fella knocked my hat off, that stood upon his toe. I saw a little gap just big enough to squeeze a bum in, so I had me on upon it, I rosined up me bow. And I was there, sitting in the middle of the patio and the bowing, the bones of me fiddle, and we played just like it was going out of fashion as we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion of the session to flee. Thank you, that was great. There were singers and musicians from the nether end of everywhere With harps and hurdy-gurdies and a clatter of castanets And ethnomusicologist from London in the corner Beating with them with the squeaking of his portable cassettes a choir of eighty a cappella in the ladies' lavatory A brass gang of accordions squeezed around the door They even had a section for the bowlins in the basement You could tell when they were bashing the rumble through the floor And I was there, sitting in the middle of the patio and the bowlin The bones of me fiddle and we played just like It was going out of fashion as we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion The session of the doodle diddle doodle diddle doodle diddle I like the last one what a fabulous festivity, a feast of famous faces Anybody who was anybody, show the body there The Celtic literati, the Isle of Man to Brittany Were lifting up their drinking arms and letting down their hair Bewhiskered balladeers and real recording superstars A pack of pickled pipers kept the dancers on their toes And also one who looked a lot to me like Donald Lunny Another face I recognised but couldn't pick the nose and I was there, sitting in the middle of the banjo And the bow running the bones with me fiddle And we played just like it was going out of fashion As we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion The session to the ukulele, the ukulele, the ukulele, the ukulele, 
so with spirits elevated We ourselves inebriated As we fiddled and we tippled and we danced a night away Till I finally departed with the publican's persuasion The yawning of the dawning of the morning of the day The throbbing in me throat and the numbness in me noddle From the bouncing of the bubbles on the bottom of me brain I've often felt a graving for a spot of Celtic graving But I fancy I've forgotten how to find the place again And I was there, sitting in the middle of the banjo And the bow run and the bones with me fiddle And we played just like going out of fashion As we gave the tune to thrash and with the passion to three Try this one I was there, sitting in the middle of the the banjo and the bones of me fiddled and we played just like it was going out of fashion as we gave the tune to thrash and with the passion the session to the deeple to the deeple title deeple title da Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui Dunedin's favourite goddess Tahu Mackenzie Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, kota hoho. I hope you're all having the best day for superstars and your beloved universes. I really hope, wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day, who you are of nature's art perfect unique and here making things better thank you now I know that for all of us over the last more than a year we've had a very intense time together and being part of this show and having these five minutes with you has helped me immeasurably in that time and of course for all of us it's so important that we find parts of our lives that are outlets for our love and outlets for our nurturance, outlets for our compassion and care, outlets for our big picture thinking so that we can share and we can co-evolve and commune and assist with one another's journeys so we can learn from each other. And I love this show. All of the interviews are so fascinating people all over the world and I'm talking to you now of course from Royal Pearl my heavily adorned Toyota Wish as we traverse the rather steep and magnificent Gladstone Road Delmore, Stuneden all these trees are in flower including a wattle I was walking past here with my partner Harvey Penfold the other day and he said what will we do which was highly entertaining for me and quite unusual as he's not the most verbal of all life forms so I hope that for you you're finding opportunities to make one another laugh and see the stories that lie behind all these life forms we too of course are living stories and it's so important that the story that we tell ourselves and the story that we identify with is one that energizes 
and amplifies our best aspects, that animates us and gives us a sense of purpose. We can look back, of course, throughout the course of our life and see our story unfolding. We can see how everything that's happened has contributed to who we are now, but does not define us. And we can send love to that self, that past self, at all ages, throughout time and space. And we can send love not only to our past selves, but to everybody, to all living things that have gone before us, that we have interacted with directly or not. And of course, in the same way, we can send love where we're going. We can send love into the future. We can send love towards those we haven't met, those that haven't been born. This is something we can do. And of course I feel that our consciousness is unlimited. Our consciousness is so powerful and so creative that in fact we can choose at any time to sculpt a reality that suits us best. I'm making my way of course to this beautiful wild reserve. I love to go walking every morning, talk to my dear mama over in St Ives in the UK. And I was walking there yesterday and for the first time I saw a big rat had been hunted and devoured by somebody. And whereas normally I see lots of little rabbit poos and I have seen a white rabbit there before, this is the first time I'd seen sign of another wild creature, so that was quite exciting. And when I was making my way back up the loop I saw a big fluffy black cat was running across the field at the top. So how lucky we are that we are always surrounded by so many other stories that are living alongside us and that process of Raraka Kōrero and interweaving all our stories is such a privilege and I really hope for you that you are feeling that today. You're seeing these living stories that's feeling grateful that yours can commingle with them. We can make a larger enduring story together and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Karen McAnulty. Karen, not so long ago, I was um, just scrolling through Facebook and, and came across a story about your truck, which you're selling. And it really sort of defines you really as a person. I think the kindness just from this decision you've made. Will you tell us about it? Well, I have a, um, I'm in possession of a nine. 1997 Mazda Bounty Ute. Uh, it's obviously 24 years old. I've had it for about 15 years. Um, and I am very attached to this Ute. I love it very much. Um, but the time has come for me to replace it. Uh, it hasn't, the canopy hasn't had a door for about 10 years after it got broken into for the first time. Um, where there was once a glass sunroof, there is now an aluminium sheet because a truck flicked a stone up from the road which smashed the sunroof. And as it turns out, it's very hard to find a replacement sunroof. And uh, the insurance company was going to write it off. And I thought, I'll oh, bugger that. I can find the better solution to that. So got the local mechanics on board and they got to the local sheet metal workers and everyone got quite invested in saving the ute. And then they did. Now, um, the heater only works on the third setting, so three of the four settings don't work. 
the radio falls out if you're going over a bump and uh, it can sort of only get up to about 40 k's uphill um, <laughs> and 80 k maximum speed on the flat. Um, but it's still very good downhill. But the, um, the, the point is that it's, uh, it's served me well. It's done 437,000 kilometres. And uh, but the time really has come for me to upgrade. And uh, there's yeah, it's not very efficient driving it around the the electric anymore. For example, there's no air conditioning. And in, in summer, I used to have to drive around with spare iron shirts in the back seat because when I got to my destination, I would need to change. It gets very hot and wadded up from the summer. Um, so I thought, well, you know, now's the time. And, and it, as it turns out, it was quite funny because the um, I'd always said that I'd get another Ute when this one died. And, but then the, um, the, the clean car discount policy came out and it actually made me stop and think. Like when I bought this vehicle, I needed a ute. I was doing fencing. I was working in the shearing sheds, doing a bit of firewood on the side. Uh, I needed a ute. But then I stopped and thought, well, actually, I don't need one now because I'm not doing manual labor as much as I'd like to. I just don't have the time. So maybe I could look at alternative vehicles. And because of that policy, I, I looked around and thought, maybe now's the time that I could do my bit and buy a, a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, and I have. Um, and so um, while the ute's still got a bit of life in it, I thought, well, I may as well put it on auction on Trade Me and see how much money I can get for it and um, donate it to the Rural Support Trust, which is an organisation which does a phenomenal job in our most isolated communities. So uh, it's up to $3,500 at the moment. Um, yeah, I thought it was probably only going to get about 500 bucks, so I'm delighted. When does the auction finish? On the 3rd, so I've still got a wee while to go. I thought I may as well try and milk this as much as I can. You know, the longer an auction goes on for, the more you get for it, and um, the more we give it for charity. So, uh, yeah, but you know what it's like with these trade me's. You've always got a two or three bidders that have a crack at each other to start with, and then it sort of dies down a bit. And then with three minutes to go, it's all go. And everyone tries to jump in and get a bargain. So I'm hoping that it'll winch up a little bit in the meantime. Well, we'll post a link to it when we, um, <laughs> Good on you. When we put it on. So there, there's, a big, there's a big jump from sharing sheds, fencing and firewood to being a politician and the chief whip. What inspired this decision? Because that's a big change. Oh, there was a fair bit happened in between too. But, um, I, uh, I I went to uni and and um, I went down there with the intention of studying psychology. I've always been fascinated by people. Um, turns out, if you want to learn about people, just become a whip. You learn about people pretty quickly. Um, but I went down there to do that, and it just as interest, I, I took a politics paper, uh, politics one hundred and one. And it happened to be the first lecture of my university stint. And by the end of that lecture, I walked straight over to the registry and changed my major to politics and never did psychology the whole time I was there. Um, because for me, uh, politics is um, a unique field that you, where you can uh, influence outcomes that genuinely change people's lives and and can um, improve the lives of, of entire communities. So. Um, I'm deeply passionate about Wairarapa. Um, I've lived there my whole life. My family's lived there for seven generations and um, it's part of my identity. And so to be able to represent them in Parliament and advocate for improvements of everyone that lives there is, uh, is an incredible privilege.
Um, but after uni, I went to over to Ireland, where you know both sides of my family hail from, and I was raised to maintain that strong cultural connection to Ireland and played a couple of seasons of rugby over there and came back and in the middle of the global financial crisis, got a job and mastered in as a case manager at work and income, um, then transferred to Porirua for work and income as a, you know, a bit of experience, ended up working as a bookmaker at the TAB, um, then got a job as economic development manager at the Marston District Council, and then I got in on the list in 2017. So jack of all trades, master of none sort of thing. That's a stellar journey. Well, you know, there's plenty of people with more interesting lives than me, but um, uh, what I do say, if, if ever I go to schools and I'm asked to speak to class, particularly those that are considering what to do after school, I always tell them one thing is that um, never just dismiss an opportunity from the outset. Always give it due thought because you never know what's around the corner. And, you know, what I, what I can take from what I've done is that none of them link to the other in any obvious way. But if I think back that um, if I hadn't uh, gone to Ireland to play rugby, I wouldn't have got the experience I'd had uh, working in the racing industry because I had a, a part-time job in a bookies office over there. If I hadn't have got the um, job at work and income, I don't believe I'd have the lived experience to genuinely understand the the the, the situation that many families find themselves in. Um, if and, and ironically, if I wouldn't have got the job at the TAB if I hadn't worked at work and income because that job was advertised through work and income. So that's how I became aware of it. Through the TAB job, I got to do things like uh, dealing with the media, um, doing television presentations, uh, talking to large crowds, but mainly dealing with statistics. And if I hadn't got that background in statistics, I would never have got the economic development job. And I don't think I would have been taken seriously in standing for parliament if it weren't for that job. So everything links together. But if you put them on a bit of paper, they look just like a complete jumbled bit of jigsaw.
Kieran, I have some questions to end the show and not very much time to do them, so we shall have to be quick. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, uh, well, getting elected um, as the MP for Wairarapa is quite easily the greatest moment of my life. Uh, it's an incredible privilege. My great-grandfather great great grandfather was the campaign manager for the Labor candidate in Ekatahuna against Sir Keith Holyoke. And he had a dream of uh, a Labor candidate one day winning Ekatahuna, and it's never been done. And this election, I won Ekatahuna by four votes. And um, honestly, it brought a tear to my eye because I know how much that would have meant to him. And uh, so, you know, I was a list MP between 2017 and then got elected um, by my by my home region, and uh, it genuinely means the world. So we are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's the superpower that's got you into the mansion? Oh, I, I certainly wouldn't consider myself a hero, but. Um, uh, I just think everyone deserves respect and um, and a bit of honesty. Um, you know, if you can look someone in the eye, even if it's bad news, um, and just be honest with them and up front, they might not like what you have to say, but they'll respect it. And also just remember that uh, it doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't define who you are. And uh, you can take the job seriously, but you don't need to take yourself seriously. And um, just because someone's got a different job and it might not be much, it might be at the supermarket, but it doesn't mean that they don't deserve as much respect as you expect from other people. That was my daughter's suggestion as to ask you about your responses on Twitter. She said that you you respect everybody, but don't take yourself too seriously. So it's exactly, it's exactly what she said. <laughs> she, oh, that's okay. so she says, thank yeah. you for doing that. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Uh, yes, yes, I do. Um, I, uh, we all perform a role of an activist in our own spheres and, and, and to varying extents. Um, I, I'm an activist in the sense that I am true to Labour Party values and, uh, and try to live those and advocate for those in every thing I do, not just in this job, but in my personal life as well. Um, but I very much apply those values within a rural provincial context. And I've always been firm in the view that the Labour Party is the party for rural New Zealand. And I'm conscious that not everybody shares that view. And often when I say that, I get a bit of a laugh from the crowd. But I am firm in that view. And, uh, and every day I try and, and, and demonstrate why. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, I want to see, I want to do my bit to work towards a country where uh, we have no children living in poverty, where we have uh, every working person in this country earning a decent wage with good conditions and where uh, everyone has an opportunity to succeed. And that's not just workers, but that is employers as well. Um, what COVID has demonstrated is that businesses are no good unless there are people uh, 
able to move around and spend money. And uh, that unless we have uh, businesses uh, that are, can support workers, um, then we can't function as a society either. It is just like a team. And I think that COVID has demonstrated that to the uh, community at large. And that gives us an opportunity to leverage that and actually strive for a very fair and egalitarian New Zealand. And lastly, and quickly, before you turn into a pumpkin or mice or something, <laughs> do you have any advice for our listeners? Uh, well, I'll just extend the advice that I that I um, touched on earlier that I give to the kids is that because opportunities don't stop coming when you just when you become an adult, someone's going to ask you to do something or be involved in something or propose to you something that at first might seem a little bit you know, you might feel a little bit squeamish or, or it just doesn't sit quite right. I just say, never say no straight away. If you're not feeling comfortable about it, just say, I'll think about it. Now, the answer still might be no, but if, there's a very good chance that you say no straight away and then you live to regret it later. But if you give yourself adequate time to think about that and still decide on no, then you're less likely to kick yourself because no one gets anywhere by not taking chances. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Um, back yourself. They wouldn't be asking you or putting something to you if they didn't think you couldn't do it. Thank you for that. Moira? That, that is very good advice. Karen, um, you are a wonderful role model in uh, not just your local community but throughout the whole country. Thank you very much for the commitment that you've made for the work that you do and for the way that you view the world. Um, and you are someone who truly walks their talk and I appreciate that. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, look, I just wish that all interviews were this nice. Um, thanks very much for having me. It's been a Thank pleasure. You. It's a working man I am And I've been down underground I swear to God if I ever see the sun Or for any length of time I can hold it in my mind I never again will go down underground At the age of 16 years Quarreled with his peers Who vowed there'd never be another one In the dark recess of the mines Where you age before your time And the cold dust lies heavy on your lungs it's a working man I am And I've been down underground And I swear to God if I ever see the sun Or for any length of time I can hold it in my mind I never again Yeah.
safe spaces around the world brought to you by the sustainable lens team which is brought to you by otago polytechnic we broadcast on otago access radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz you can find us on facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we had a contribution today from tahu mckenzie this is the dubliners working man before that we had marcus turner's the session and dropkick murphy's i'm shipping up to boston I'm Samuel Manning, Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Wira Karatai in Fakatani, and coming to us from Parliament in Wellington, we've been joined by Kieran McAnulty. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.